Oh, something's about to happen. I knew it. I knew it. It was too good to leave this one on the cutting room floor. I got a bit of stick last week for this. 55 seconds, they said. 55 seconds is too long. Shows what they know. Not too much, is it? It's not too much at all. I love it anyway. Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to episode 41 of Fratello on Air, otherwise known as Wasp 2.0. That's right, we made it to a second week. We got it through the executives. We're back on air with another watching sports and sporting watches podcast. I'm going to be joined by my main man, Balaj, all the way from Karlsruhe shortly. But first, I'd like to introduce to you a new segment. It's called. Ranting Ranting Robbie. Robbie. Some people, some bright sparks around the internet have been suggesting that because Tom Brady went on to win the Lombardi Trophy in his first season with the Buccaneers, that somehow Bill Belichick is chopped liver. It's nonsense, and I'm going to tell you why. Firstly... Tom Brady's coach down in Tampa Bay, Bruce Arians, he's a damn fine coach. He's not exactly a washed-up bum. Quite the opposite. When Arians took over from Colts coach Chuck Pagano while Chuck was undergoing cancer treatment, Arians won as an interim coach, Coach of the Year honours. He got a pair of Super Bowl rings as a Steelers assistant coach. Perhaps best of all, he took my beloved Cardinals to the doorstep of Super Bowl 50 where they got handled by the Panthers. That last bit's unfortunate, but the rest of it rings true. Arians is quality. Secondly, Arians is not getting the Brady that Belichick got when he drafted him in the sixth round of a 2000 draft. That young Brady, sure, he was hungry. He was a fierce competitor, maybe one of the fiercest to ever play the college game. But at that point, he had won exactly zero Super Bowls. He had engineered exactly zero pro NFL comebacks. He'd done nothing. He hadn't endured any of the limelight that would shine blindingly bright over the next two decades. In my opinion, the Tom Brady that stepped on the field for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers was accompanied by the ghost of Bill Belichick and all of his wisdom. That do-your-job mentality that Belichick instilled in Brady and all of his players is terrifying for a young kid coming out of college and feeling their way in the pros to be confronted with. And yet, the chilled-out Tommy B that we saw this year dipping his feet in the paddling pool of success down in Florida exuded that message. He didn't need to say it. He didn't need to bark it down anybody's throat. They knew. All of those men in that locker room knew what was expected of them, and they delivered. Thirdly, Bill Belichick wasn't exactly rubbish before Tom Brady came along. Or should we say, before Bill Belichick decided to roll with the fresh-faced youngster in Super Bowl 36, even though Drew Bledsoe, another pedigreed draft pick, and the team's former starter, was healthy himself. Belichick already had two Super Bowl rings with the Giants, and he found himself, after a stint as the head coach of the Browns, as a very respected coach around the league. He was groomed to succeed Bill Parcells at the Jets. Of course he didn't, we all know what happened there. He ended up as a top dog in New England, effectively a general manager and a head coach. With that kind of control, he spent the next two decades keeping a tight grip on the salary cap to ensure that Tom Brady was able to slice and dice his way to six rings in Foxborough. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Belichick wants to win now to prove his system works without Tom, but the dual truth is that he doesn't have to, and maybe that's okay. 
Remember, as important as coaching is, this is a player's league. Belichick doesn't throw or catch passes. He can't eke out yards on the ground himself. He needs his players to execute. Over 20 years with Tom, he found players who could do that. And he built them around the man himself. The conversation about whether Tom's current success undermines Belichick's legacy is so superficial, it hurts my ears. Yes, it's awesome clickbait. It's great to chew the fat about whether an eight-time Super Bowl winning coach is a fraud. It also makes anyone indulging in that nonsense sound mildly ridiculous. Balaj, please enter the smooth booth and give our listeners something else to listen to. Well, I think that um, there is, in this case, in Tom Brady's and Bill Belichick's case, I think there is uh, clearly uh, a pattern and that's that one doesn't go without the other. I mean, out of the uh, seven Super Bowls that Tom Brady has under his belt, six came uh, with Bill Belichick. Whether Bill Belichick is able to get another three, four without Tom Brady, or the other way around, whether Tom Brady's get another uh, couple without Bill Belichick, that's the question. I mean, this year shows that Tom is on a on the right path to do that because he just won his first one without Bill Belichick. What came to my mind when when you talked fairly longly about this um, symbiosis, or well, uh, probably not a symbiosis anymore, is the. Um, if I want to turn this and convert this into basketball, it's probably the Phil Jackson, Michael Jordan, well, relationship or chemistry that they had, which reminds me of that. I mean, they also had six championships, right? 91, 92, 93, and then uh, six, seven, eight in Chicago. Um, and Phil Jackson, after uh, Michael Jordan retired for the second time, and, you know, the Bulls kind of uh, were dismantled and many of the key players were traded. He went to um, to Los Angeles, obviously, and then he won another five with the Lakers. Uh, although that 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 route was not as smooth as as um, one would think, and definitely not as smooth as it was in Chicago. If you want to know more about that, which which I wanted to, then I suggest you get Phil Jackson's book Eleven Rings, because that details his whole career as a player. Kind of talks about his childhood a bit. He details his career as a, as a player for the Knicks, then as an assistant coach and coach for the Bulls and then the Lakers, and it ends with his last championship. So, I mean, it's 11 rings because he has 11 rings as a coach, but he has 13 rings altogether, right? He's got two rings um, as a player with the Knicks. Funnily enough, the only two championships that the Knicks has ever had won was with Phil Jackson on the team, although he was not a key player on the team, but he was still on, on the Knicks and was 70 and 72 two or 73 i'm not sure so yeah the guy has uh, 13 rings 11 as a coach and uh, i mean he he kind of coached two dynasties right michael jordan and the chicago bulls and then kobe bryant shaquille o'neal and then kobe bryant with you know pagasol and blah 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 the lakers uh, a few years after that yeah he's quite a fascinating character there's there's very few people like phil jackson Last episode, we did mention briefly The Last Dance, which of course was the TV event of 2020, I think. I've, I've never seen so many people uh, get so excited about um, a documentary, a sports documentary, no less, um, than they did with that um, MJ retrospective. And Jackson, throughout it, really, for me, he was a star of a show because you mentioned that MJ came across in some ways as a little sick, as a little bit um, unhinged, you know, competitively unhinged uh, with his desire to win always. Jackson, on the other hand, was just this guru, sage, like uh, Zen figure. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he doesn't just appear like that. He is like that as a person and as a coach. I mean, you saw some of the 
<laughs> some of the native clothing he was wearing when he was yeah. coaching the Bulls and some of his philosophies. It's unbelievable. And to, to net 13 rings and to get those two as a player, which, you know, some of, the, some of the greatest coaching minds in the history of American sports and international sports weren't great players. Jose Mourinho, for example, in football. And uh, I mean, Bill Belichick himself, he was a lacrosse player, not really a football player. Mm-hmm. Um, it's awesome that Jackson, despite not being the superstar player that he was coach, has those rings from the boards himself. Yeah. As I said, if you if you read the book, I don't want to go into details. I want to spoiler alert, but um, he really talks about um, the methods that that he tried and tried out because he was not really a, a trained coach, right? It was He was just good at it. But when I read through the book and then he talks a bit about Pat Riley, who was obviously his, um, as a player, but also afterwards as a coach, um, his counterpart, who was a, a, a very good coach, and he and he coached the well, the quote unquote classic way. If there's such a thing, Phil Jackson was more of a of a of a, a teacher or a or a tutor. He had very different methods. He was not really, and he tells this in the book. Like I don't or I didn't want to do things that coaches in the NBA did. I wanted to shake things up and and you know bring in a psychiatrist, bring in a a, a life coach, um, have a um, I don't even remember what he called it. He didn't call it the war room, but uh, maybe I can't remember. I think it was a tribal room. So it was a room decorated with like a Native American stuff um, because he wanted to to create an atmosphere which gives the players a peace of mind and where they can relax and and they can kind of detach, especially around the time when when the Bulls was on top because you saw it in the last dance that Michael Jordan was he was really on top of the world, and that comes with a lot of good things. And a lot of bad things, like he could not literally leave his his hotel room to to go out and and take a walk. Um, so he wanted to to take the player's mind off of things sometimes and put them in this room and meditate and turn the lights off and and light candles and uh, play some music. And uh, yeah, it seemed to help. I mean, six rings in Chicago is hard to beat. It certainly is. And uh, yeah, Jordan was a really intense character. And it isn't just for Jordan's ability to switch off to have this safe space, as it were, but for his teammates as well, maybe even to uh, get a little bit of respite from the man himself, because he did used to push people pretty hard on and off the court. And he demanded a huge amount from, of course, himself. And I think that was what the main takeaway I had from the whole Jordan documentary. And the thing that I I certainly clung to myself as a life teaching if there was anything to be taken from The Last Dance was that nobody, none of his peers, none of his teammates, none of his coaches ever suggested that as much of a ball buster as Jordan was, that he ever asked anybody to do anything he wouldn't do himself or in many cases perhaps had already done. So I like that about him. I think we all meet these people in our lives little jumped up middle management types who uh, like to dish out rules, but don't follow their own advice or aren't able even to follow their own advice. Those kind of characters, they don't inspire you. They're just great on you and they annoy you and you lose respect for them very quickly. A player like Jordan, who did everything he could at every point throughout his career to be exceptional, uh, really does have that platform from which to demand a huge amount from his teammates and Jackson was cool and clever because he just let it kind of happen. And this is, this is something interesting that goes back to the Brady Belichick discussion and maybe shines an even better light on Belichick than I already have done in, in, in my, in my three part rant there. Uh, and, and that is that coaching concepts 
can't really be picked up and dropped into every situation. You know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. always work. There isn't a formula. Coaching isn't a paint by numbers. It's really difficult. It is a man management job. And I think Jackson was really successful in the time that he was because he was one of those first kind of buddy-buddy coaches, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, you talked about, and Jackson referenced himself, the classical way of coaching, you know, the sort of Hank Stram kind of, you know, yell it into you uh, in in many ways. Um, Jackson was maybe more whisper it. I don't know, like, or it will come to you on the wind. He was a bit of a spiritual guy. He just brought the right team together and he created an environment in which they could just go and play basketball. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He was, he was, I think he was, <clears throat> he tried to keep the distance, especially with certain players and the younger players. Obviously when he was, I don't know, maybe in his early fifties or late forties and the players were in their twenties, it's, you know, you can't really have that much respect, but of course they respected him as a coach, but but again, I think that he was more of an educator or, or like a or like a pedagogue rather than a coach. And that was the and of course he had a great team behind him. I mean, Tex Winner, who virtually invented the the triangle offense. I don't want to get into the details. And and a bunch of other assistant coaches. I mean, his team was even without him, the the that team of coaches were were amazing. But yeah, he had a very, very different approach and the players saw that. Um, realized that and appreciated that. And I, I think that was one of the keys to his success. Right. Let's leave the NBA where it is at the moment. And we're going to flip the conversation back to hockey. At least we're going to start the last segment of today's show uh, with a little bit of a retrospective of the Lake Tahoe games that were played out under the blazing sunshine um, a couple of weeks back because it, it spawned an idea in my mind. But before we discuss that idea that I had, let's talk about those games and the setting and uh, competitiveness of the games was, was pretty good on both on both fronts and the score lines were interesting. The first one didn't go my way, of course. I'm a Vegas Golden Knights fan, have been since they were founded. I spent a lot of time in Vegas that year and was looking for a hockey team to support and uh, they touched my heart with their amazing run to the Stanley Cup final in their inaugural season. They fell 3-2 to the Colorado Avalanche on the uh, on the mushy ice of Lake Tahoe on the Saturday. Um, they managed to get get their revenge a couple of days later back inside. But what did you what did you make of it as as an event, as a concept and the setting itself, Belage? I mean, the concept is is obviously interesting. I think that's the first time, and uh, it goes back to the to the roots of of ice hockey playing, you know, on on a frozen lake. Obviously, this was not a frozen lake. Although a lot of the players also thought that they're going to play on a on a frozen lake, because Lake Tahoe was was not frozen at all. It's a, it's a huge lake between um, California and Nevada's. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it was like a obviously an ice rink created by the lake. But it was the perfect setup. I mean, it's just you know. Nature is amazing there. It's um, it was very interesting. Maybe uh, the, the the Vegas Colorado game should have started later than 12, uh, 12 p.m. That was uh, that was a, a bit of a problem. But um, I like the idea. Um, I like the setup. Um, I said the scenery was beautiful, and um, I would love to see an, an actual NHL game on frozen lake, on a, like maybe not Lake Tahoe, but on a frozen lake. But until then. Yes, this was the second best thing. So it was uh, it was interesting, and the second game uh, was was even more fierce than the first one. Yeah, the second game was the pick of the two uh, in terms, well, especially for a neutral. It was yeah. great. There was some really good hockey. Um, the Flyers looked like they were gonna 
cause the Bruins more problems than they did at the end of the game. The scoreline flattered Boston a little bit, I think. But um, what an explosion of offense uh, from the Bostonians. I was uh, I was very impressed. Um, great stuff. They are firing on all cylinders, those boys. I tell you, I mean, they're going to be, I think they're going to be the runaway uh, number one seed uh, from their division in the playoffs. And um, Especially the Czech guy. Uh, I think he scored three goals out of the seven. David Pastranek. Well, which is, you know, Pasternak is one of the greatest characters in the in the modern game and uh, we need more people like him. He's uh, he's awesome, a really cool dude. And yeah, he's just, he is, uh, he's blazing, on blazing form at the moment. And he's and 24 years old, man. He's super he young. He is not 24 years old. <laughs> he is. It he feels born. like he's been around for a million yeah, years. Yeah, well, yeah, he might have, but he's, I think he was born in 96. He's 24 years old. 96. Yeah. Good grief. That makes me feel old. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, what a what a talent he is then, and thank goodness he's so young because we could have another decade of him. I suppose mm-hmm. it seems like he's been around for so long simply because Boston frequently go on these uh, at least into the postseason runs and often quite deep. Yeah, man, 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 they were they were really unfortunate, I think, to come undone in the playoffs last year. They they looked so strong in a regular season. This this season again, I think they're going to hit the end game, looking like the favourites to to take it all. I think they're probably probably my number one in my mind at the moment in the Stanley Cup. And that game outside uh, in Lake Tahoe did nothing to diminish that thought. But hey, here's the thought that dawned upon me while I was watching these games, and I, I watched them both. I even stayed up for about three hours watching the ice melt. Um, after the first period of Vegas, Colorado. And I I waited for the commissioner to come and uh, call it off. And I set my alarm the next morning to to get up and go and watch it again because I was so, so taken by this stunning setting. Now, I, I'm a, I'm a, a hill walker, as, as you probably know, uh, a runner, and uh, I obviously played my fair share of team sports in my time. Um, but what I like most about walking is that it's the greatest arena, the great, the greatest sporting arena in the world. It's why the Tour de France is possibly the the greatest uh, contest held um, on planet Earth because the whole arena is France. You know, you don't get much better than that. Going to work every day, cycling through the Alps or along the coast or through the the, the beautiful wine valleys of of that wonderful country, and. It, it, it sort of dawned upon me, like, this is my church. You know, this is where I go to sort of feel like at home somewhere. This is where I connect to the world around me. And being able to do that through sport is a massive, massive privilege. Watching these games at Lake Tahoe, I thought, hey, you know what? We've got some other sports. We've got uh, American football. we got baseball. Uh, we have got basketball, of course. And I also threw another one of my favorites in there just to be off, off base, and that is lacrosse. And we'll throw the hockey back into the mix as well. So we've got five different sports. And I want to know, Balaj, mm-hmm. where, okay, you can choose anywhere, mm-hmm. anywhere, any any known location, let's put it that way, in case you want to go intergalactic on me. Mm-hmm. Where would you like to see each one of the leagues hold their own outdoor game? And to tie this back into our profession, of course, which watch company should fund this event, sponsor it, bring it to life, and why? Let's start with the MLB. So Major League Baseball. I don't know if you know this, Rob. I do because I did the maths. A football field, like American football, is 4,459 square meters. Okay? That wasn't a number on the top of my head, I have to admit. Yeah, well, it is It is now. 4,459 square meters is a football field. A baseball field is 11,140 
eight square meters. So almost three times the size of a football field. So it's get pretty, out, get out. Huge. Is it well, three times the size? That's what I. That's what I get. Well, well I to- okay, okay. I believe you. I suppose a football field is a lot narrower than we than we often think, so it isn't huge. Yep. Okay, I go ahead. Yes. So. so, what is that you need when you want to play baseball? Space. You see what I'm. You see where I'm going. Right. What you need if you want to play baseball is gravity, because <laughs> you have pitchers. Right? You have catchers, you have runners. Okay, okay. So you need gravity and you need space. Now, (laughs) check this out. I'm going to move a baseball game into space, but into a little space. (laughs) Okay? I can't believe you literally left the bombs of Earth at the very first opportunity. I I mean, dude, you said anywhere I want to go. I know. I just didn't think you were going to go actually to space. Okay, fine. How much much fun it would be to have a baseball game... In space, like outer space, but in a very tiny space, an international space station in zero gravity. So there's not going to be any pitching or or catching. I mean, you can pitch, but, you know, (laughs) and hitting and running. And I was thinking that the two teams should be home team, obviously, the Houston Astros. That's that's a given, right? Uh Against... Last year's World Series winner, the Dodgers. And check this. And what what brand, what watch brand should sponsor a baseball uh, match in space other than Omega? So it has to be Omega. But this time I went with color coordination. For the Houston Astros, I chose the, the Omega um, Planet Ocean Orange because of the colors. They should wear those watches, maybe not during the game, but, you know, before. That should be the team watch. And the team watch for the LA Dodgers should be the 300M with the blue bezel. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice color combo as well. I mean, I I love the Dodgers uniforms. I think it's a real classic look. Um, I was glad to see them finally get over the hump and win win the World Series last year, taking over from from my team. I'm a Washington Nationals fan. Do you have a baseball affiliation, Balazs? Um... Not really. I always wanted to go to a Yankee game just because it's the Yankees. But um, the first, my first experience with baseball was in San Diego. So I guess I have to be a, a Padres San, fan. Have to be, yeah, I have to be a San Diego's Padres well, fan. Well, you've picked a damn good time to become a Padres fan because they've got Tatis Jr. down there at the moment. And they went back to their sexy brown and yellow uniforms. Man, that is, that is a nice strip. And you're sticking with the pinstripes. So you can have the Yankees as your second team. Have you never been to the Yankees? Stadium. No, no, I've been to I've been to San Diego, the, the Padres Stadium, and I've been to the gift shop, and I have you know my my hats and stuff like that, and T-shirts, but I've never been to to the, the Yankee game. No, I so. got a good tip for you. Um, so I went, I think I went to five games in um, the 2018 season, Yankee Stadium, because I was doing a bit of work in New York at the time, and every opportunity I got, I hopped on the uh, the metro and went up there um, to watch the game. There's uh, a pass you can buy, a, a ground pass for the mm-hmm. Yankees that you can't really get in, in many other ballparks. It's called the Pinstripe Pass. It was really cheap. It was like 15 bucks, and you didn't get a seat, but you got access to the ground and you could exchange your Pinstripe Pass for one beer, which if you know the prices of beer in, in baseball stadia, then you know um, that's that's about one for one. So uh, you, can, you can still enter the game up until I think it's the bottom of the fourth, 
you know, you can miss the first few innings if you're dashing there late after work. Pick up a pinstripe pass, head in there. Yankee Stadium got so many great bars with so many great viewing platforms. To me, that's the way just to, if you're a real baseball head, you know, if it's if it's not just like, you know, a one-off lifetime experience. And if it is, then you should definitely like spring for a good seat behind the plate and, you know, get there early and buy your beers before the first pitch because they're cheaper. Check mm-hmm. out the, you know, the gift shop, buy a load of stuff, whatever. But if you're a guy that just, you know, if you would go to three week, three games a week, if you're that kind of guy, like I am, then the pinstripe pass is perfect because you can just buzz around the stadium. I never stay in my seat anyway. And security for the cheap seats is absolutely pathetic in all major league grounds. You can just move around. You know, I was in I was in Wrigley Field watching the Cubs play and I changed my seat five times. That's the best stadium I've ever been in, in my life, by the way. So if you get to go to one baseball stadium, go to Wrigley Field in Chicago because it is like a museum. And the coolest thing is you've got this stadium in the middle of like a residential district and all of the buildings around it have got bleachers built on the very top of them. So you can see into the ground, like Mm. they charge entry or it's like private for the people that live in those buildings. And it's just nuts. It's like, it's like a metaphor of like the, the, the team spilling out into the city and being so integrated with its people. You can't beat it. Fantastic. But if, yeah, if you ever get a chance to head up to uh, Yankee Stadium. Definitely go for the pinstripe pass. Really, really uh, cost-effective way to get a beer. And sometimes they don't even keep the pinstripe pass, so you can just move around to the next bar and keep showing it and keep getting free beers. Although uh, you didn't hear that from me if you get caught doing that one. Uh, So crazy, crazy good answer. Um, I don't know how we're going to top it. I love that you picked teams to compete. And I love that you chose watchers to go with the team uniforms. So I'm going to pivot and I'm going to, I'm going to follow the same pattern because that's a really, really good idea. Um, Let's see, where shall I start? Okay. I am going to start with Premier Lacrosse League. Now this is a new thing. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Um, This is the top echelon of lacrosse in the United States at the moment. It used to be known as Major League Lacrosse. But the two leagues have, have created a merger. And in doing so, they've done something a bit weird, um, something I like very much actually for emerging pro sports. I know lacrosse is very, very, very established in North America, but it doesn't have the viewership or the following of the, of the big four sports. Um, and that is that all of the teams in Premier Lacrosse League have had their regional affiliations removed. And they compete at a neutral site against each other on game days and uh, it means that you can follow like a, a club, any club. You just choose the jersey that you like, I guess, or follow your favorite players from club to club. And you can you can watch them uh, battle it out without any regional associations whatsoever. The advantage of this, I think, is that you can you can hold these game days in a single location, so you can you can save a lot of money on the logistical side of things. You don't need a huge infrastructure. Uh, you don't need to uh, lobby a local council to find the money to build a new stadium or get you know parking permission, blah, 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 all the nonsense that usually goes into fra- franchise foundation. I'd like to see it with Ultimate Frisbee, a, a game I used to play myself when I was in university. And uh, I think that that would make a fantastic spectator sport, but they need a way to get money into teams without asking cities to stump up the cash. So Premier League lacrosse. Where does lacrosse come from, Balaj? Do you know? I have zero clue. I have to say I'm not even, you know, familiar 100% with the game itself. So let's not get into that, but please educate me. Okay. So it's one of my favorite games. I played this in in college as well. And uh, it's actually quite popular in the north of England, bizarrely, although 
I never played for the local, the most local team to my hometown, although I still hold out hope of one day suiting up for them. Uh, it's the oldest organized sport in North America, and it has its origins um, it, in the indigenous people of the Eastern Woodlands and mm-hmm. various other indigenous peoples uh, from the North American continent. It was um, played over an enormous, enormous uh, field of play, um, often like... Um, undefined almost geographical region, a bloody violent sport, almost like a type of combat. People did die playing it in in the old native times. Mm. Um, And uh, it was uh, adopted and, you know, somewhat gentrified and given rules to become the sport that we we know and some of us love today. Isn't it... uh I could be wrong, but isn't it a sport that people in in Central or South America also played? I mean, uh, uh, you know, natives like Indian uh, tribes or South American uh, tribes played before the the Spanish arrived. Or wasn't it some kind? Or what was it? Basketball? Uh, not basketball. Obviously, it was invented by um, a, a teacher. But so I remember that I read like I think either the, the Incas or whoever had this game that they played. Uh, which which resembles something that that uh, that's a popular uh, game. These yeah, days. that's like basketball, right? So I believe it's when we're talking right? about it, it's the one where I think the field is stepped on either side. There's like three levels, and then there's a small kind of hoop um, mm-hmm. or hole in in one of the walls. And I think if I if memory serves, you're definitely right. It's South American. It's Inca Maya or something mm-hmm. like that. The winning team was sacrificed, right? I think is how it worked. I, yeah, I also remember some 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 beheadings going on and playing with the heads or just displaying them. I I can't even remember, but but it must have been something similar to basketball. Obviously, not basketball, but uh, yeah, it was it was pretty brutal. And um, it, you know, that's the kind of losing streak I would like to find myself on if the, <laughs> if the prize was uh, being separated from my head. Uh, but lacrosse was uh, was not quite so. I mean. Yes, it was bloody, it was violent, and people would be injured or killed in like one-on-one confrontations, but that wasn't the name of the game. Um, the name of the game was to pick up the ball, if you could find it, and deliver it to your opponent's goal. And uh, I, I think because of the size of the playing fields in the in the original days, that one goal was often enough to win. Um, so what would I do in terms of playing this game outdoors now? I would go right back to its roots. I would not have the players kill each other. But I would take two of the teams from the Premier Lacrosse League. I would take the Redwoods and I would take the Cannons. Now, the Cannons used to be known as the Boston Cannons in the Major League Lacrosse days. And they now have no geographical affiliation, but I'm going to stick with them being in Boston. The Redwoods similarly don't have any geographical affiliation, but because we find Redwoods in California... I'm going to drop them in Cali. So I'm going to take the Redwoods and I'm going to put them in California and I'm going to take the Cannons and I'm going to put them in uh, Massachusetts. And then I'm going to take the ball and I'm going to drop that somewhere around Oklahoma. Okay. And Mm -hmm. I just need these guys to make their way across the country, old school style on foot, find the ball and deliver it to the opponent's net. Now I expect this game to last uh, years. And I expect, you know, there to be all kinds of narratives woven into this, uh, this, this rich tapestry I'm weaving. I expect the players to settle down with 
women or men along the way and have families and have friends and have children. Perhaps you could maybe join their team and follow them in the hunt for the ball, which is rolling around in Oklahoma somewhere, possibly picked up by a, by a, a lonely armadillo and uh, dropped onto some freight train heading north, you know, could be in Winnipeg for all I know. They have to find this ball and it becomes like a kind of reality TV show or the players, we grow with the players, you know, maybe they don't make it in their lifetimes. Maybe they, some of them are definitely going to die in some weird accidents along the way. Maybe they, the, the cannons and the redwoods collide before they even find the ball. And there's a bit of a punch up or some, some other violence. And uh, yeah, it, it just descends into complete chaos just imagine the joy and the, the glory of even firstly finding the ball and then scoring that goal. This could keep us entertained for many, many years. So instead of watching, I don't know, these terrible real life programs, my girlfriend's obsessed with like uh, the bachelor or um, I don't know what love Island, blah, blah, blah. We can watch, we can watch uh, the, the, the lacrosse life. That's what I'm going to call it. The lacrosse life. Or lacrossing the continent. Okay, I'm going to call it that instead. No, 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 stop it. Stop it. That's enough. The crossing (laughs) the continent is enough. I don't want you to go crazy on that. Um, Okay, okay, okay. So watches, right? I need watches for these guys. Yeah, exactly. I was wanting to say, okay, so you need something that's, you need like a a watch that is an outdoorsy timepiece, I'm guessing. You're not going to take up a tech or a Lange 1815 to the woods. That is certainly correct. So I'm going to go in two different directions and I might be giving the um, Redwoods a distinct advantage here, but I'm going to go old school for Boston and I'm going to give them a a mechanical watch. I'm going to give them the Seiko Prospects Automatic Field Compass SRPD31K1. It's a gorgeous looking thing. Um, It's black with heritage colored looms, day date. It's got a compass, um, really hardy, um, capable of standing up to the kind of... uh, Kind of beating, I'm sure those guys will give it during their, their epic journey across North America. And uh, the Redwoods, on the other hand, they are going to get, because they're from California, um, they're going to get an Apple Watch. And they're going to, I'm just going to see if they can, like, if that helps. I'm sure it'll help. Um, and yeah, obviously that gives them a distinct advantage, but it, it does kind of lessen their bragging rights if they use the Apple Watch. You know, the first the first season, which I imagine to run for about three years, could be uh, like entirely concerned with whether or not the team are willing to sacrifice their honor and use the GPS function. What would you, uh, what would you give to, to my guys? So if we're thinking new with a GPS, I have to go with the, the Casio ProTech a smartwatch, you know, with the built-in GPS, like seven hundred forty dollars or so. That's, that's the one. That's the one. You know, where you can uh, you can actually see the map on the screen. So it's like a it's like a colored screen, and you, you can actually see like a, a, a GPS map and tells you where you are and things like that. that that's a very cool watch, and I think for seven hundred dollars, if you're into that type of stuff, that's pretty cool. And bear with me, if you want to go vintage GPS. I remember when I was probably in high school, because I started high school in 1999. I'm older than you, right? A year, two years older. Um, no, I think, I think but, you're uh, you think you're two years younger than me, aren't you? I started high school in 97. What year, what year were you born in? 85. Yeah, 84 for me, by the way. Bizarre. So How, why, do you start, why do you start high school so late? Started primary school in 91 until 98, and then, uh, so 99 summer, and Why then did you from go to 90- school? Hungary. Then I went to high school, a boarding school, from 99 <laughs> to 2003. No way. That's weird. I started primary school in 1990 to 90, 
summer 97 and then went to secondary school then yeah. weird. weird well anyways um i remember that uh, it was probably 1999 when i was going to the movies and uh, as you would have it in a mall where you have uh, the cinema um there was a shop that sold um quartz watches so not the most expensive ones with casios Seikos, that kind of stuff and they had a crazy huge watch and i think that was the most uh, expensive watch at the time in the display and that was a casio and i said you know casios at the time especially in in primary school that was like the, the cheapest stuff like kids would have like 10 12 year old kids something a casio for this much money and it was huge and that was a, the casio um it was also pro track but i think the I'm, I'm not G2, and I haven't done my research. Probably the grandfather of Protec, and that was a Casio PRT-1GP, which had like a huge button on the side that said GPS navigation. Amazing. And, and then there was a PRT-2GP, which had the same look but a different button. Yeah, and those things, my friend, are still six, seven, eight hundred thousand and up uh, on on eBay. Those vintage vintage watches. Obviously, black and white uh, screen, you know, and buttons everywhere. And yeah, so um, you want you went went vintage. Well, I went vintage too. That's uh, that's hard to beat. I mean, that's a classy watch. It may be fairer to give both the Canons and the Redwoods the same thing. So maybe they could, uh, maybe they could all rock that Casio. That would be pretty nice. That'd be pretty sweet. My uh, my old man would approve. He's got a Casio Pro Trek. Um, completely knackered it. To be honest, he needs a new one, and I might I might treat him to something because I I see Casio have got some very tasty stuff about to drop in the next few months. Um, we can't reveal the specifics here, but keep your eyes glued to Fratello because there is some uh, some good news coming your way from Casio. Oh, yeah. So oh, God, I really wish I could say something about what I saw the other day, but oh, wow, it's worth waiting for. And it's um, it's completely new. It's not like an upgrade uh, to an existing model. And um, oh, tasty, 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 hot stuff. So before I divulge any embargoed information, I need to move myself on. Where would I hold my dream NHL game? Well, you kind of touched on it before. You said... Um, you know, a lot of the players as well thought that they were actually going to be playing on a frozen lake, which um, was hilarious in the interviews when they realized they weren't. Um, I loved it. God bless them. They're like big kids sometimes. But why not? Why not play on real frozen water? But hey, lakes are so last week. Let's take this to the ocean. Let's take this oh. to the mid-Atlantic. And I want to I want to cultivate an enormous sheet, floating sheet of ice now, these are breaking off from the poles at a pretty steady pace anyway, thanks to global warming. So we might as well put it to good use. Let's tow one of these enormous ice sheets right down to the middle of the Atlantic, and we will get my beloved Vegas Golden Knights to play out their victorious Game 4 in the Stanley Cup against, ooh, well, let's make it fun. Let's let's say the Penguins. Pittsburgh Penguins make it into the uh, into the big dance. <laughs> so we got the Penguins skidding around on the ice against my Knights, who are only there because I love them. Uh, and uh, their watches. Now, I, I'm going to go for Omega as well because I just think that it's a perfect choice um, to wear in the middle of the Atlantic. And I have two suggestions. I have for the Penguins... Because of their black and yellow color scheme, I'm going to give them the uh, Omega Diver 300 meters coaxial chronometer chronograph in 44 millimeters. This is mm -hmm. one of the more like old school Omega Seamaster 300Ms still in the collection. It feels like it's from a generation 
before the current one. And the price tag really reflects that because it's only 5,000 euros for this piece, which is nuts for a Seamaster chronograph in 2021. Still a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money, yeah. And would I choose this one myself over the newer chrono? No. And how many? And how many do you need? How many? Do you, how many players do you have in a team? You like got with, five on the ice. Uh, uh, well, yeah, six well, right, on the ice. But, in the keeper. And then you have another ten on the bench. Right, right, right. right. That's a lot of moolah. That's a lot of moolah, man. Well, it's not too much for Omega to donate to this amazing event, which is going to be broadcast all around the globe and in the space station. So the Los Angeles Dodgers and Houston Astros, who we've got floating around up there, can watch it as well. Uh, that's pretty cool. Okay, so that's my Penguins choice. And then for the um, for the Golden Knights, I wanted to stick in the um, in the Seamaster canon. And unfortunately, there aren't really many uh, modern, great, all yellow gold options for the Golden Knights. You could go for the bicolor steel and yellow gold Diver 300 coaxial master chronometer 42 millimeters, which commands a very hefty price tag of 10,300 for a time and date only watch. But the one I would give them because it's Vegas and because they've been rocking those heinous helmets uh, recently. Have you seen those gold chromed helmets they've been wearing? Mm -hmm. oh, 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 it's awful. Almost made me turn away from my fandom. No, but just because they're going to keep wearing those for the rest of this season, hopefully bend them off afterwards. I will give them the James Bond limited edition, all gold Seamaster. That's 42,200 euros a throw. So uh, yeah, that's an expensive bill. Yeah, that's not bad. I was thinking uh, I reviewed like, two years ago, the Omega Seamaster Aquaterra 150M world timer in solid gold. Mm-hmm. And that, well, I mean, that unit has the, has a um, a map of the world in the middle of the dial that could be nice because it's like surrounded by ocean so they could like put like a little star where the ice uh, was floating this little island or whatever that is oh i like that i like that that's very nice oh yeah that's that'd be really cute. you know which on the big chunky heavy one it's a pretty cool watch i wore that to the uh gphg that year and uh i have to say people kept on checking my wrist everywhere i went well, that's quite a compliment, considering you were surrounded by the creme de la creme, yeah, not, the horological world. Yeah, but not in the not in the restrooms, you know. That's. <laughs> that's <laughs> I, I don't or, that for a second. Or it just very uh, very friendly people. I don't know, but there I felt a bit uncomfortable. You have a good vibe about you. You can't help it. I'm sure people always come up to you and uh... <laughs> keep checking my wrists. Uh, yeah, that's what they were checking. Yeah. The, the... The and uh, no, no, no. But but that's a cool watch. You should maybe maybe for the coaches you should get that right. The players can get the the normal one and then get the world timer for the coaching staff. Sure. Well, I don't imagine the guys that actually wear it on the ice when they're playing. It's not like um, um, lacrossing the continent. Um, my soon to be top performing uh, Nielsen rating dominating TV show on HBO. Um, no, I, I think that the uh, I think the players would probably keep them in the locker. Or maybe they would wear them. I mean, for goodness sake, if we're, if we're making them play on a floating lump of ice in the middle of the Atlantic, they might as well do what the hell they want. Or you just you just ask Richard Mill. They love that stuff, right? They love to, to strap uh, watches onto sportsmen when they're not supposed to be wearing watches anyways. Yeah, that's a good but, point. Um, maybe we should consider Richard Mill. But hey, before we go down a Richard Mill hole, tell me your choice for the NBA. My NBA choice um, would be a game between the New York Knicks and the Boston Celtics. And the reason I chose the Knicks is because, well, you know, that's 
uh, a legendary and iconic team. We just talked about it earlier when we talked about Phil Jackson, that they only had two championships, 1773. So, you know, they've been a, a kind of a laughing stock of the NBA in the last 20 years, right? I mean, this year they kind of okay, but before that, um, you read more about the, the issues with Spike Lee and the and the owner than than the team itself. So the boys, I feel that the Knicks, the, the boys need to get some fresh air. So I I wanted to take them out of the arena, Resident Square Garden, which is a magnificent arena, by the way, and put them on top of the Empire State Building. Oh yes! Now we are talking. Yeah. That's amazing. Yes. Right? So the city deserves a good team, man. Those should, come on, come on, come on, guys. Come on. Just get some fresh air. Get on top of the building. Take a look at the city. This is the city you're representing. And check this out. If you pay close attention, you can actually see Brooklyn over the Hudson. Oh, and maybe. you might even see that stadium. And you know who's playing in that stadium. <laughs> the Brooklyn Nets, who is the second behind Philly at the NBA ch um, uh, chart right now. So Philly is number one, and Brooklyn is behind the second place, 24-13, I think, with you know the, the, the three uh, superstars, James Harden, uh, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving. So maybe those, those Knicks players could take a closer look at Brooklyn and learn something from those guys. I tell you what, I fancy the Nets to uh, make it all the way to the to the finals. I really do. I'm not sure if they will, but they're definitely going to go into the, the second round. I would say. Oh yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, playoffs, yeah. sure. It'll be uh, a fantastic clash if they get it all all the way all the way to the end. It's, but it's a very fragile team, you know. Those guys are prima donnas through <laughs> and through. Well, yeah, fair enough. But I mean, the the triple headed monster worked well for Miami in LeBron's day, so maybe it could work well here as well. It depends True. whether they they figure a way, figure out a way to get through a whole season with a harmonious locker room and put the egos aside and just play ball. And if they do, they're going to be True. tough to beat. True. They get a good coach too, a rookie coach, Steve Nash. I love Steve Nash. I love mm -hmm. him from his playing days. I really do. Um, Awesome dude, awesome dude. One of my favorites. I'm always, always a fan of the uh, of the short white guy. You know, I, I saw myself in them. Not as good as John Stockton though. He was my favorite player of all time. So, uh, do love John Stockton. I love his short shorts, and they keep me up at night sometimes. All right, uh, too much info, all but uh, yeah, that's that's what I would, and I would. And I would go with Boston as the opponent team because they have 17 rings. You know, I think the same now as the Lakers, and Boston is number four. Um, The NBA right now is with 19 and 17. Uh -huh. So uh yeah, they could they could they could show and of course Knicks, Celtics, that's like a classic rivalry. So they can show some moves to the to the New York Knicks to finally get themselves together and maybe start winning some games and hopefully then the 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 life would come back to the to this amazing arena in the in the dead center of the city where it's supposed to be. I can't really think of much better, to be honest. I think you absolutely nailed that one. Um, that's a dream come true for for me. Um, basketball works in such a confined space as well. You could you could easily just put a cage. I mean, there is already like a cage around the top of the Empire State, so people don't accidentally fall off. But you could definitely like you could definitely host it on top of, if not that building, easily a flat top skyscraper, and it would look like the most urban and real version of a game going. And uh, I, I don't see why they don't do that. I think that it would be pretty easy to make that safe and it would look stunning. Remember that movie with Sean Connery, I think Finding Forrester, I think it was the name. Yeah, it rings a bell. 
the 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 young uh, African American guy who was like into basketball but also into writing and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think in that movie there's a scene. I, I'm I might be wrong, but I think in that movie there's a scene where they're playing basketball. It's he goes to this private school. I can't remember. I've seen the movie a long time ago. But they they play basketball and they play basketball on top of a building in New York. And it's actually, as you said, it's a cage on like I don't know the 50th floor, and that's the that's the basketball court of the school because it's in downtown. So it's a button that's on top of the building. There you go. Yeah. Ready made. Ready made. Ready made. All right. So um, I'll take the last one, I guess, on our list, right? So uh, I'm going to link this back to episode one. If you've not listened to it yet, dear listeners, please hop back and give us a listen. Um, It's uh, on the Fratello On Air pod channel. It's listed as episode 39. It's Wasp 1.0, the the first, first edition of this watching sports podcast. I'm going to take our, our good friend, Rob Gronkowski, and uh, he's going to be the star of this this NFL show, which is going to be held in the Pacific Ocean. I've got a thing going here. It's the oceans for me, definitely, on an mm-hmm. abandoned oil rig, all right? So I was reading about this recently. Um, there's a ton of oil rigs off the coast of like San Francisco, like a huge line of them. I didn't know this. I've been to San Francisco a few times, never saw them, but they're apparently like quite visible uh, if you know where to look. And um, they're no longer used for for oil procurement, but they are um, maintained, at least for now, as like artificial reefs. So there's the wildlife and like the biodiversity beneath the surface of the ocean attached to these um, these these big feet that the rigs have like digging into the rock is absolutely amazing. So they, they look like they're probably going to stay, they're going to keep at least the bits that are under the water. Maybe they'll get rid of the bits that go above the surface that you can see. But before they do that, I'd like them to clear it out and I'd like them to put a football field on it. How big did you say a football field was? A football field, my friend, is fifty-seven thousand six hundred square feet. Okay, okay. Well, we got we got the imperial and the metric in one show. That's amazing. So, um, you really did do your research. Impressive. I did. Uh, so we don't need that much space because I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get rid of the end zones. Okay, I'm going to get rid of them both. Now, I'm a fan of diving catches. All right, I always have been ever since I was a kid. When I was a little baby boy, I had this video called NFL Rocks, old VHS. And I used to watch it every night before I went to bed. And it was um, like hard tackles and amazing catches set to 80s hair music, mostly like uh, a Backman Turner Overdrive and Richie Sambora and the like. And uh, it shaped me as a man. It's probably to thank for all of the uh, ills that have occurred since. Um, but oh I want to take diving catches to the next level. And this is why Gronkowski and the books have got to come along because Gronk is ready made for this diving catch into the non-existent end zone which will see him plummet about 60 meters or however high an oil rig is i actually have no idea into the ocean below into the nice warm ocean when he's down there he can swim around and he can say hello to his little fishy friends and whatnot and he can he can tell them the time if they do so wish to know it thanks to the unimatic that you cleverly strapped to his wrist last week so everybody both sides they get unimatic spongebob watches one gets the black dial one gets the yellow that's it. <laughs> nice. That's a nice one. At the end of it, everybody's ended up in the drink. So we're going to have like, um, so Brady's a California native, um, grew up in Montana, idolizer as, as he's frequently mentioned. So we're going to have, we're going to have the Bucks. We're going to have defended Super Bowl champions and we are going to have them playing. Hmm. 
who can we go for? Let's just stick with the West Coast and drag the Seahawks down from Seattle. They need they need a they need a bit of uh, something to look forward to this offseason because it's going a bit pear shaped with Russell Wilson's protestations at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, very cool. I have to say, very very cool. Uh, oil rig. I never thought of that. I mean, I've never been on one either. I, I would love to see it one in first hand. I, I knew some people in Scotland who, who used to work on on these platforms. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating life. It's a very hard. As, as far as they told me, they made a lot of money, like really a load of money, but it was very, very hard. Yeah, well, I think they earn it, whatever they do, and it's definitely sure. not the safest of jobs going. Um, and maybe we could invite them along, but I, I don't really want anyone on the platform. Maybe we could have bleachers along the sideline. That would work. Otherwise, we could have like uh, people in boats just floating around watching on screens suspended suspended from helicopters like hovering about so it's going to be a real like it's, it's a very be a expensive game man it's it's going to be hugely expensive but we, you know i chose a, a cost efficient uh, collectible watch to free up some cash for the rest of the nonsense that i want going on around it so i'm going to have like cheerleaders are going to be in full old like diving gear with the big brass helmets so they're barely going to be able to move but they're going to be on the bottom of the ocean doing their cheers with waterproof pom-poms, it's going to be unreal. It's going to be totally amazing. So in our rundown of the five greatest games never played, we have the Houston Astros playing the LA Dodgers in space on board the International Mm -hmm. Space Station, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We have the Cannons playing the Redwoods for the continent of North America in In the woods. In the woods, <laughs> everywhere. They still haven't found the ball. They won't find the ball by the time we hit episode 100, I'm sure. Um, for basketball, we have, yeah, I think this is the one that really excites me because it's the one I really think could happen and should happen. The NBA needs to listen to this podcast. Anyone listen to this podcast connected with the NBA, call up the commish and get him to agree to this because it has to happen. It's perfect. It's waiting for you. Um, for the NHL, we have a floating berg in the middle of the Atlantic where the Vegas Golden Knights face off against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, and then finally for the NFL, we're off the coast of San Francisco and on an abandoned oil rig with no end zones so Rob Gronkowski can float through the air while catching yet another touchdown pass from the great Tom Brady. Indeed. It's a nice, uh, nice list. It is a nice list. And on that note, we're going to round it off. Thank you again for listening. Uh, We really appreciate it. Please get in touch with us on fratellowatchers.com. Leave us some comments below the podcast. Let us know what you'd like to see, what you'd like to hear less of. Maybe a bit more ranting Robbie, maybe a little bit less this time, perhaps. Tune in next week. Stay safe till then. We'll speak to you soon.